Martin Luther was extremely angry. He was a very angry man because the Pope, Pope Leo X, needed money to build his great big cathedral, St. Peter's, in Rome. And he was trying to work out how to get money from people to build his cathedral. And he suddenly realized that if you were willing to uh, bend the rules, then you could make a lot of money out of religion. And um, so he decided that he was going to sell positions in the church. So if you wanted to be a bishop, you had to pay a certain amount of money, and as long as you paid more than anybody else, you became a bishop. If you wanted to become an archbishop, you had to pay even more money. And one wealthy person bought uh, the position of bishop for his two-year-old son. So they had the two-year-old boy who was bishop. But he still didn't have enough money. So he thought, well, how on earth can I raise some more money? Then he thought, having sold positions in the church, now he was going to sell positions in heaven. Now he was going to sell forgiveness of sins. So if you wanted forgiveness of sins, you could buy it. You could buy a piece of paper, and it was called an indulgence. And it was uh, written uh, that the, you had paid so much money, and so you were being forgiven these sins, and you were being saved from purgatory for thousands of years. And then not only could you buy this for yourself, you could buy it for your granny and your granddad. And you were told about your, your granddad who's in, in purgatory and he's in torment. And all you have to do is buy this piece of paper, give money to the Pope to build his cathedral, and your granny will be rescued and be in heaven. So you put all the money you've got and you bought these indulgences. You even told you could buy them and get forgiveness for sins you hadn't committed yet. Oh, so this was good. So one guy went and bought uh, uh, an indulgence for a sin he hadn't committed yet. And then when the guy selling the indulgences was riding out of town with his big box full of money, he went and robbed him. And <laughs> told him, well, you've already forgiven me for it. I've got all the money. So he thought that was good. But people were thinking that they could buy the forgiveness of their sins. And this made Martin Luther so angry that he had to do something about it. So he got a large piece of paper and he wrote down 95 statements. The first one being that we've got to repent of our sins, not buy forgiveness, repent of our sins. Second thing is, repentance isn't something we do just on one day and that's done, but it's a lifetime. And on and on he wrote these statements, and then he took it to the uh, town notice board, and he, he pinned it on the notice board for everybody to see. And within a week, it had been copied, it had been printed, it had been distributed throughout the whole of Europe, and it had set fire to people's imaginations, where they realized, you don't buy forgiveness of sins you cannot buy forgiveness of sins all the money that bill gates has got can't buy the forgiveness of one sin and you can't work and earn the forgiveness of your sins in the old days if people wanted to go uh, to a different country and they didn't have any money they could go on the ship and they could work their passage so they worked and instead of having to pay they just worked and they were given it free 
or some people who hadn't paid for their meal in the restaurant had to do lots of washing up afterwards to pay. And they thought you could earn things. And people thought you could earn forgiveness, earn heaven. But Martin Luther knew you couldn't. He had been a monk. He had done his best to earn forgiveness and found you couldn't earn any forgiveness of sins because the wages of sin is death. This is why there would be no salvation for you and me if Jesus hadn't died. He died in our place. He bought the death that our sins deserved. So you, you can't buy forgiveness by putting money to build a church in Rome. You can only receive forgiveness from Jesus who has died to pay for our forgiveness. Now, let me give you an Old Testament illustration of this. You know the story of Moses and the um, Ten Commandments and the Ten Plagues. The film was on the television on Good Friday. Um, I think it was 1957 or something when it was uh, filmed. An exciting story. But they have these plagues in Egypt. The first one is the uh, river turns to blood. The tenth is the death of the firstborn son. The firstborn son was the priest of every family. In the Egyptian religion, the firstborn son was the priest of that household. He represented the whole household. And God told Moses that God was going to strike dead the firstborn male of every family. The wages of sin is death. But is there an escape? Can we be saved? Yes, you can, said God. You have to sacrifice a lamb. The lamb has to die for the family. And then you have to take its blood. And you have to go outside your house and you have to look at your front door and you have to put the blood on the upright, across the top, and down the other side. And then you have to go into your house under the blood. So you go in under the blood protected by the blood of the animal that has died instead of you. And you must stay in that house. And then when the angel of the Lord comes and when he sees the blood and you in the house under the blood, the angel of the Lord will pass over that house and not visit it with judgment. So that's why it's called the festival of pass over. Now just imagine the scene. There's um, Jacob with his six sons and his eldest son Eli is a naughty boy. He's a 12-year-old boy. And he's not just a 12-year-old boy. He's a very, very mischievous, naughty, wicked 12-year-old boy. Just ask his sisters. And he's there. And he's told that they've got to put the blood on the doorpost and they've got to go in under the blood and they've got to stay in the house. And then the angel of death will pass over them and they'll be all right. And he says, but dad, I've been such a bad boy. I've been such a naughty boy. And if the angel of the Lord is coming, I'm going to get it. No, says his dad, because the 
animal has died instead of us. Its blood has been shed, and we are trusting in it. We are relying upon it. And when the angel comes, he's not going to look at you and your uh, mischievous behavior or your wicked heart. He's going to look at the blood. And when he sees the blood, he will pass over because you are completely safe because of the shed blood. Well, says um, Eli to his dad, why can't we do what Samuel's dad has done? What has Samuel's dad done? Well, he didn't want to kill a lamb. So what he's done is he's just written a list. and He's written all the good things they've done as a family. And they put that on the doorpost. So when the angel comes, sees that they've given this money to charity. And they've done those good works. And they've put up with their mother-in-law. And they've done all these good things. No, that's no good. No good. doesn't matter if, if they've got so much uh, good deeds that they've got to cover the whole house with it. It doesn't matter. Unless there's the blood, they're not okay. Well, says um, Eli, what about what Ezra's family has done? What's Ezra's family done? Well, they put the blood on the doorposts, but then they've gone fishing. No, that's no good. They've got to be in the house relying on the blood to protect them. That's what they've got to be doing. Well, what about one more? What Levi's family has done? They put a whole big pot of money outside the door. And the Lord can take that money and do what he likes with it. And they're paying for it. No, says Jacob to Eli, unless the blood has been put on the doorpost. The blood of the animal that has died instead of us. And we are trusting in it, hiding underneath it, protected by it. That's the only way we're going to be saved. You remember the story. And you know, it's not a myth. In 1977, Mordecai Gilula, who um, is an Egyptologist, he published um, the translation of some Egyptian hieroglyphics that he found both on pyramids and on coffins. And he's put these down. And do you know what they all say? They all say... That night of the slaying of the firstborn. See, this isn't a myth. This is true. Well, rush from the Old Testament to the New Testament. What does the apostle say? Ask them, is there any hope for us? And they say, yes. Hide under the protection of the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb who fulfilled the prophecies and his blood was shed. And therefore, if we hide under his blood, seeking the protection of his death, then we are saved. Trust that, says the Apostle Paul. So look at it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and see what the Apostle Paul teaches us here. He says, first of all, in verses 1 and 2, that we must truly believe. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. He says we've got to truly believe the gospel. Not be like Ezra's family in that story I told who sacrificed the animal and then went fishing. For them, religion was a bit like a lucky charm. 
You know, people who carry the New Testament around with them or wear a cross or wear a cross or have a rabbit's foot or something. They just want religion as a lucky charm. That's no good. It's not enough to know about Jesus Christ. It's not enough to know about God. number of times when I've done street evangelism and people think they're going to heaven because they've got O-level in religious studies. And they think because they know a bit, then they must be all right with God. But look what the Apostle Paul says. Otherwise you have believed in vain. All this knowledge. And it's no good. Think of the lad brought up going to church. He can't remember a time when he's not accepted that Jesus rose from the dead. But he's not committed his life to Christ He wants salvation, and he wants all the pleasures of sin as well, and he wants to walk through life having both of them. No, that's no good. We've got to truly believe the gospel, not just have it as some kind of fire insurance. Or think of the young lass whose life is all messed up. She's made a mess of things, and she goes along to church, and she meets the folks, and they're lovely folks, and she sings the songs, and they're lovely songs. She loves it all. She thinks, this is what I want. Here's friendship. Here's a home. I'm going to go along with this. And so she says, oh, yes, I believe in Jesus. I also believe in Zen Buddhism, but I just like it because it's nice and friendly. That's no good. Think of the young man who used to sit next to you in church. He accepted it all. He agreed with it all. He knew it was all right. Sometimes he would pray. And yet his Christian life was so up and down and up and down. There was no consistency because he wouldn't repent of his sin. And then when it came to the crunch, he said no to God. And yes, to sin and self. Or think of the girl who's in the youth group and all her friends are being converted. They're all being baptized. They're all joining the church. And so she just goes along with them. She's just half-hearted about it, but she just wants to be in with the in crowd. That's no good. Look at what Paul says. We must receive the gospel. Do you see that? Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach you, which you received. You know what it's like when you're given a Christmas present or a birthday present? You take it, don't you? Yes, you receive it. And we have to receive Jesus Christ as Lord. We have to receive the gospel, the whole of the gospel. We receive it. This is what it means to believe, to receive the gospel. Um, John's gospel tells us that Jesus came unto his own and to as many as received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. We receive it like receiving a present and, look, on which you have taken your stand. That means you building your life upon it. You're standing upon it. It's the foundation for your life. It's the foundation for the whole of your life. It determines how you do your job, how you look after your in-laws, how you bring up your children, how you spend your money, how you spend your holidays, what you do with your hobbies, how you behave at church. You're building your life upon the gospel. You're not saying, this is what I like. You're saying, this is what is true. You're not saying, this is what is popular. You're saying, this is the gospel. I'm building my life upon the gospel. This is what it means to believe. And you hold firmly to the word 
I preached to you. You, you grip it. You hold on to it for dear life. I remember someone coming to talk to me, and well, this has happened several times. Uh, I read this, so I decided to use it. Uh, and these people come to see me, and they say, Chris, they say, I don't think I really believe the gospel. I don't think I'm saved. And I say to them, because it's obvious to me that they believe and love the Lord, they're just suffering with doubts. And I say to them, all right, if I write you a check for a thousand pounds right now, will you accept it and promise never to pray, <laughs> never to worship God, never to trust in Jesus Christ, never to meet together with God's people? Oh, I couldn't do that, they say. Oh, I couldn't. You see, even though they doubting that they're saved, they know they can't let go. They're holding on to the gospel, holding on to Jesus Christ. Holding on to the gospel, the word, means there are some jobs we can't do. There are just some jobs, which because we're followers of Jesus Christ, we have to say no to. It's, it's costly. And for people in, say, Syria today, it's very costly. Where there's persecution. We've been watching uh, over this weekend services on the uh, internet, live services uh, in these churches because they're being filmed just in case there are terrorist attacks. It's dangerous, it's costly, but this is what it means to truly believe. We hold firmly to the word, otherwise we have believed in vain. We must truly believe. Secondly, verses 3 and 4, what we must truly believe. We don't simply believe that God exists. We don't simply believe that Jesus was a historical person. We believe three things. First of all, we believe as of first importance that Christ died for our sins. That means Jesus did not die because he was crucified. It was impossible for nails and a whip and a spear to kill him. What happened was that when he had completed the word work of our salvation and said it is finished, then he gave up his spirit. He laid down his life and he permitted the cross to do its deathly work. But he didn't die because they crucified him. They, he didn't die because they whipped him. He died for our sins. He died to forgive us our sins. He died to rescue us from our sins. First of all, Christ died for our sins. Secondly, that he was buried, truly dead, and in the tomb. And thirdly, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. Death is defeated. Jesus Christ is the living Lord. So we bow before him. It's as if we fall on our faces before him and, and take hold of his hands and put them on our head and say, Lord, reign over me. Rule over me. We must truly believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, and rose from the dead. 
And finally, why we truly believe this. Look at verses 3 to 11. You see, it's, it's incredible. It's an incredible story. But it's not a fairy tale. It's true. This, first of all, is what the scriptures have taught. Down through the centuries, through hundreds of years, in different countries, different people have prophesied. And the prophecies have all been fulfilled. That Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The whole message of the scriptures is that the Messiah was going to die and rise again. This is what the Bible taught. So that's enough for us. If you want to know why do we believe this message, well... The Bible teaches it. But more than that, verses 5 to 7, people witnessed this. It's not only that this is what the inspired holy writings of the centuries taught, but also that he appeared to Cephas at Simon Peter, then to the 12 apostles. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. Then he appeared to James then to all the apostles. People witness this. Now notice, it's not... Is this me? Sorry. Let's just keep you awake. Do you want to switch this off? Do you just do these? It's me, is it? Right, Sorry. If I catch fire, <laughs> it's been nice knowing you, and I know where I'm going. See you there. All right. Witnessed by all these people. And it's not exaggeration. It's, it's all millions of people. No, it says the numbers. There were 12 here. There was one there. There were 500 on this occasion of the, uh, of the ascension. It's not a myth. It doesn't say once upon a time. This is history. This is fact. We believe it because the scriptures teach it. We believe it because people witnessed it. And then we believe it because it is powerful and it changes people's lives. The Apostle Paul tells us that last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Actually, literally, the Apostle Paul says as one stillborn. He says, I was born dead. He says, I was born spiritually dead. It wasn't that I was, you know, some kind of super religious person. I was spiritually dead. Not only was I spiritually dead, but verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I was not only dead, but I was hostile. I was dead against Christianity. It wasn't that I had a religious bent. It wasn't that I was kind of warm and disposed to believe the gospel. I was dead against it. I was hostile to it. I was persecuting it. But I received God's grace and it changed me. Look at that. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. It's not that I've changed myself to make myself good enough for God. 
But I have realized what Jesus Christ has done. I have surrendered to him. I have received him as my Lord. And his power has invaded my life and is changing me. This is why we have testimonies. This is why Marion's been telling us her testimony. This is why Joy's been telling us her testimony. That's why I can give you my testimony. The next song we're going to sing was written by uh, people whose baby died. And out of the suffering of their baby died, they've written this song about hope for the resurrection. What about you? Has the gospel changed your life? Or are you like one of those people? Oh yes, the blood's there, but you've gone fishing. Or you're just half-hearted. Or you believe it. Because the word of God says it, because it was witnessed, and because the power of it impacts your life. I was talking to someone this morning, we talked about birthdays. And this person said to me, he said, I've got two birthdays. He said, I think you've probably got two birthdays too. I said, yes, I do. The day I was born, and the day I was born again. This is the gospel. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. He died, was buried, and rose again. And when we believe in him, we shall not perish, but have, not will have, but have everlasting life. If you don't have two birthdays, you can make today your second birthday. You can open your heart and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray.